0: Placemaking is working in what we kind of call the built environment. So infrastructure areas, these could be parks, these could be streets. Uh, it could you know, even be, this is going to sound kind of weird, but like things in the air that you are taking a space and you're making a place out of it. So you're activating it in some way. And placemaking does not have to be for political purposes. Pop-up markets are a good mm. example of placemaking. You have a vacant parking lot, they throw a pop-up Christmas fair in it, and uh, that's making place. It's taking a space and making a place. Little free libraries are an example.
1: This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations.
2: Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are here together
1: at our team retreat in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Thank you so much to Jolie for allowing us to stay in your beautiful house here. It is a perfect spot for us to think about the future of the show and think about just how to tighten up what we do and do it better. Lots of you have contributed in a variety of ways to making this week special, and we just thank Jolie and all of you.
2: So on today's show, we're going to talk about the hurricane and the tragic loss of our soldiers in Kabul, and the continued tragedy of Delta. And specifically, we're going to talk about how to hold all of these things at the same time. And in our main segment, we're going to share our conversation with Dr. Ryan Salzman, an assistant professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University, about civic engagement, which we think will be just what we all need after the conversation in our first segment. And then, as always, we'll share what we're thinking about outside politics. Okay. I have a big announcement before we get started. It's really big news. I'm really excited about it. Okay. We've had lots of requests and we're going to do a Pantsuit Politics Peloton ride together. I think I set this up correctly. We shall see. On Tuesday, September 7th at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time, we'll be taking a 30-minute ride with Cody Rigsby. I'm going to try to figure out how to video chat, y'all, but you have to be following me and I have to be following you. It's at Bluegrass Red. So make sure you're following me. Please join us. There's a link in the show notes so you can schedule the ride. So you're we're all there together. I am so excited about this. My Peloton passion knows no end. Most of y'all who are also Peloton riders, passion knows no end. So we're going to meet up. We're going to share that passion together on a Pantsuit Politics ride.
1: And speaking of following, if you want to follow along with our retreat while Sarah, Elise, Megan, and I are working together in person, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. My friend and our resident photographer, Jen, is going to be doing stories and behind-the-scenes peeks of what's happening, and we would love for you to be on the journey here with us.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch.
2: $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? And $30 off your first box when you go to WildGrain.com slash Pantsuit. That's WildGrain.com slash Pantsuit. Or you can use promo code Pantsuit at checkout. As we sit here at the start of another week, we're recording on Monday. We looked around and realized that the wall of hard things just keeps getting higher. It's not just Hurricane Ida. That made landfall last night in Louisiana and Mississippi and the terrible images of those states and the suffering that the citizens there are going through. It's not just learning the names and stories and heartbreaking ages of the 13 military members we lost last week and watching the remains come back to our shores. It's not just the ongoing desperate pleas from all our doctors and nurses across the country who are drowning under the crushing persistence of Delta. It's all of it. It's
1: just it's all of it. I read an editorial this morning about the flooding in Middle Tennessee. And the writer Margaret Wrinkle said, if the pictures break your heart, it's the stories that will kill you. And I think that that has really been true for me over the past few days because we have always had compounding tragedies throughout all of human history. We always will have them. To some extent, for a very long time, we've had news coverage of those tragedies that that when you pay attention can hit you all at once and feel overwhelming. But I think we're in a new era where the way that social media enables individual storytelling for all the good that creates in the world, and it does, it significantly ramps up the anxiety and heartbreak and the feeling that I need to do something to help, and that there are endless needs to meet, and that I'm powerless if I'm not meeting all those needs. It's just a lot to take in.
2: There's this instinct I have, and I've talked about it on the show to say, yo, yeah, at least it's not, at least Donald Trump's not president. I was thinking about this this morning and I realized it's just so different. It's like, you know, when you have something to focus on and be mad at, that's just such a different emotional journey than realizing you're just sad and scared. And it's, it's like, we're coming off the intensity of having a place to direct all our fear, all our anxiety, all our anger. We could just direct it at him. And that's not the case anymore. And I think in some ways it's, I don't know if I, if it's harder or easier, it's just different. It's just different not to, to have been in that space for so long where you can like look at one person and say you're the problem. Even if you knew it was bigger, even if you knew there was way more going on. Like it just it's a very different space to be in now that he is not president anymore and you know the complexity of the issues are on full display all the time and they were still complex under him, but it was a crutch, right, to just say it's him, he's the problem, he's the center of all this heartbreak and grief and fear and danger it's just him it's all his fault and so i don't know it's this weird thing of this weird paradox of feeling like oh it's so much better because at least he's not in charge and realizing like yeah but it's still bad even though he's not in charge
1: well i think it's a good reminder that we really never live in a villain or hero kind of time Mm -hmm. and as Much good as I think this administration has done. It was never going to be a savior. Even if we didn't have truly unusual moments happening or truly historic decisions being made, it's just a really hard job always. And being a person is always going to be difficult and overwhelming. And I think what is so tough about the series of stories that we're navigating this week, when I think about pandemic uh, Afghanistan And weather-related disasters, hurricanes, fires, droughts, flooding, it just makes everything feel so fragile. My therapist talked a lot when I was working with him about the spell of solidity and how you need, as a child, to go through life believing that things are sturdy. And then, as an adult, there is this really painful process of stripping away that sturdiness and breaking that spell of solidity. And I just think the universe is taking that a bit far right now for Mm me. Um, And it's why, you know, as we talk about sort of coping mechanisms with all of this, I think some of us are going to cope by really leaning into those personal stories, those personal photos, what some of these incredible service members were saying about their work on social media before they died. Some of us are going to really need those to cope. I am finding myself needing to turn away from a lot of that because it's a level of empathy that I just can't manage right now. I certainly can't dive into 9-11 retrospectives right now. It's not good for me. And I think some of us are going to be in the mode of I've got to donate to every cause. We're just going to have a variety of reactions here. And I mostly want to articulate that just to say when the spell of solidity is breaking, a lot of reactions are valid reactions. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: I think what is particularly difficult about the loss of our service members is, even though it adds to the the complexity of what's happening all around us, it's the first time in a long time we don't have to deal with the complexity of losing service members in a combat mission, right? It was a humanitarian mission. And so it I think it it simplifies our grief in a way as citizens. I mean the grief of the family members is its whole uh, is a whole other thing. And it's never simple. But I think, you know, as American citizens, when we lose service members and we have to think about why were they there? What were they doing? I mean, Amy McGrath writes about this journey that she took, like dealing with the reality of her PTSD and what she was doing over there and and dropping bombs and all of that. And I think that that's like its own journey, but just, you know, seeing that these service members, like even down to their Instagram posts within the, you know, days before they lost their lives were just, they were just helping. And they were, they were feeling so proud of the help they were doing. And I think that like opens up this whole other well of grief because there's not this complexity of like thinking about, what they were doing or why they were doing it or, or any, or why we were there. It's just, they were helping people and they lost their lives helping people. And that's just so heartbreaking. And I, you know, the, the solidity is so true. I, 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 not to make this episode, a endorsement of therapy, but I keep thinking about a moment with one of my former therapists where I was where I I was expressing, you know, guilt and concern, basically that my, my middle son was like crying and upset. And she looked at me honestly and said, did you think that he would never cry or be upset? And I thought, I mean, (laughs) no, I just thought it would be like my pre-approved times that I decided he needed to learn a lesson and it was okay if he was crying and upset. And still, honestly, even then I didn't like it. But the way she phrased that, made me realize, like, what was my expectation? And I kind of had that aha moment with the globe this week. Like, what is my expectation? Is my expectation that children around the world will never suffer? Is my expectation that, like, is this goal I have in mind of a global community at peace without strife or violence or death? I think sometimes that is what I have in my mind. And so anything short of that feels like I'm doing something wrong or we're doing something wrong that that solidity is the goal and we can achieve it when in reality, I know that we can't. I know that there's no space that we get to where there is no suffering and where there is no death and where there is no violence. Um, it doesn't mean that I think reducing suffering sh- shouldn't always be our goal, but i realize realized that I do hold this idea that maybe if we did the right things, if America, in particular, if America was using its might, maybe we could achieve this this magical place of peace and human flourishing and I just I think as I think through the situation in Afghanistan in particular and the mistakes we keep making over and over again, and even you know when it comes to the the pandemic and natural disasters that there isn't this space we can get to where there's no suffering. And it's not that if we do everything right, that's available to us and we've just done everything wrong and that's why we're not there.
1: As I listen to you say that, I keep thinking, well, we are doing some things wrong and we are doing some things right and that too will always be the condition of being human. A corollary to everything that you're saying is I read several opinion pieces this morning that were really helpful reminders to me that all the world's suffering, at least outside of our immediate homes, this certainly doesn't apply if you are sheltering in place in Louisiana right now, or if you are putting air filtration systems in your home because the smoke is so bad. The suffering that is not localized is always being curated for us. And in particular, I was reading about Afghanistan and about What the reality on the ground has been there for the last 10 years and how, had we chosen it, we could have had stories like the one we're seeing now in front of us every single day because things were happening. American service members did die. The Taliban did horrible things. They were increasing their power. It didn't happen overnight. It was presented to us overnight. And I'm not mad at anybody about that. There is no other way. We can't keep up with all of the suffering happening across the globe at all times. Yeah,
2: this was not the first dignified transfer ceremony in the last 10 years.
1: And that doesn't minimize its importance. And it doesn't minimize the importance of all of those ceremonies that happened when none of us were paying attention and it wasn't front page news. And I think that just keeping some perspective, it's not that it really makes me feel better. That terrible things are always happening all around us. But it does put me more in the space you're talking about, Sarah, where I adjust my expectations. And I think more than anything, I resist the temptation to believe that I must have an opinion, a decisive one, about how this could be better. I think a lot of you are struggling with what is my decisive opinion about how this withdrawal from Afghanistan could have been better. And I'm struggling with that, too. And it helps me to let that go a little bit when I recognize how very much is unfolding right now all across the globe that I don't see. I am at peace this morning just knowing that I don't have to make the kinds of decisions that the governor of Louisiana is having to make right now or that disaster relief personnel all across the country are having to make. Those are hard choices and it just doesn't benefit those folks for me to sit on my couch at home deciding that I've got a better perspective on what they should be doing than they do. And then I can kind of bring more of that to the president and to the military establishment and to the foreign policy establishment. And, you know, all of these folks who are in positions where I don't even know that right and wrong are often available. It is just what is the call that we make today based on how we understand things?
2: Well, I think about this moment in Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff, where she says, I realized that I intellectually knew that I couldn't be the perfect wife and the perfect mother, but I thought maybe someone out there was achieving it. Like secretly in the recesses of my mind, I thought, well, yeah, I'm not perfect, but somebody is. Somebody's out there making it happen. And I think that's what we do with ourselves. And I think that's how we, we... Think about the global community, we think about politics, or we think about foreign policy. Is well, yeah, we know perfection is not available, but like secretly, we think somebody could do it, somebody could get it right, or somewhere, somewhere in the world, they are getting it right. And that's just not true. And so, that's not like you said to make myself feel better. I think it's just to offer up some self compassion because if we're going to move forward and it's a global community in this information environment, self compassion is going to have to be one of the tools on the table not just bombarding ourselves with this idea that we're just getting it wrong. We're getting climate change wrong. We're getting foreign policy wrong. We're getting domestic policy wrong. Our politics are broken. Everything is bad. Like, it's just, that's not sustainable. I mean, it's not, and it's not also not accurate. It's just not. And, you know, I think that the media is built upon a foundation that, thrives on conflict, thrives on pointing out what's wrong, and it's valuable and it's important. And also, we cannot let that be the entirety of our perspective. You know, I think a lot of what's going on with Afghanistan right now, and Matt Iglesias wrote about this this morning, and I agree with him, is there is a a rush to show, see, we're neutral. We were hard on Trump, but we can be hard on Biden too. And there's like a component of that that really bugs me And I think it is, it's like baked into the model and it just fuels anxiety and it fuels unnecessary criticism and it fuels distrust. And I understand that there's nobody at the helm of what is the mass media, like looking out for this stuff. And so that just means as consumers, we have to keep, that has to be a part of our analysis as taking this stuff in and thinking through like, I can feel I can read something and it can make me feel something but I can't let that be the end of the story. I can't say like, well that that sounds right and that makes me mad and that's all there is to it. We have to keep thinking and have to keep questioning and have to and sometimes have to turn away and say I don't need an opinion on this or I'm not making decisions about this and my outrage won't help anything except for make me feel more anxious and more fearful. To
1: your point about self-compassion which I think is such a good one as we think more globally. I keep thinking about this question that I got on Instagram last week. A teacher asked how to better support kids who are struggling with wearing a mask in the classroom. And this is where I think self-compassion has to be part of the equation, not just globally, but in, our, in, in terms of what's in front of us right now as well. I didn't answer the question because I don't have an answer for that question. As I thought about it and really tried to put myself in the shoes of 20 first graders, all from homes that have different perspectives on mask wearing at school, all feeling different ways in their body today. You know, since I have a first grader, I thought about kids who just can't be still or kids who are really excited about Animal Crossing and don't want to think about anything else or or are hungry this morning or whatever, just... The, the array of needs that you meet as a teacher in a classroom like this, I just don't think there is an answer to how do you encourage kids who are struggling with wearing a mask. And at the same time, I am certain that the person who asked that question did it in a hundred small ways that no one could verbalize, but she just did. So I think it's so smart of you, Sarah, to say it is both unhelpful to think everything is falling apart all the time and untrue because it is so much easier to pull out what's wrong or to pull out where the suffering is than to pull out all of the ways that we are supporting each other and that we're doing it just by being together. And I think that's why I'm excited about what we're going to share in the next segment because it does help me to sort of lean into tending to what's in front of us when everything is is overwhelming.
2: We've been talking about on our retreat, the body keeps the score. And I think what we do is we individualize so much of this and we say, we're learning that there's trauma in our psychology and our souls and that it's connected to our body and that our body keeps the score and that there's this energy flow between these things that we think are separate that aren't. And I guess what I'm saying is that's true. In our body politic, too. It keeps the score, both good and bad. There's more going on than that article in front of you. We have more information in front of us on Hurricane Ida, on the wildfires, and Afghanistan, than we ever had in human history. And we still don't understand the way that you would if you were living it, if you're on the ground. And I mean in both good ways and bad. That there is a connectedness, that there is an energy flow both good and bad that there is this body that's keeping the score that is surviving and adapting and also holding trauma and we're not going to get that through a news article and i think just keeping that in mind helps make the news articles easier to take we chose this conversation with dr ryan salzman to share next because i think it's the ultimate lesson in this that there is so much more going on in all of our individual lives, and all of our communities, both suffering and thriving than, than we can ever understand from just consuming media. You know, Dr. Salzman teaches political science and teaches civic engagement, but he's bringing those lessons of civic engagement to fruition in his own life. And that is what we are so excited to share with you. H-E-L-P dot com slash pansy.
1: Thank you for joining us, Ryan. I really liked your book. I would love for you to start... By telling everyone the story that kicked off your research,
0: the uh, well, there's a, there's a couple things. The in the book, the first thing I talk about is this uh, painting of a crosswalk, and and I think that probably most of us have a similar experience that we've heard of in a community, either that our friends live in or we live in, where somebody was painting a crosswalk and they wanted to do it, but it was this big process. And since I sit on my city council in in my town, which is a square mile in size, uh, I, of course, was at the table when these decisions were being made about uh, whether or not this crosswalk could even be painted. And it seemed like such a shocking question to even ask. And my first thought was, well, we're not painting it rainbow. So you would think that Kind of the haters wouldn't care that much about that, but come to find out there's this interesting mix of things that occurs when we try to do things in the physical environment uh, that we consider public goods, like a street. And so there's so many competing interests that are a part of that, that whether it's the liability that's going to be leveled supposedly by an insurance company, the Department of Transportation, the people who live on that intersection, there's going to be some conflict surrounding that. But what was great about it is that what most people saw was neighbors coming together because they were concerned about pedestrian safety near a school. And because they were concerned, they had this really interesting idea, uh, which again is somewhat universal, but was definitely interesting in our community, which was to paint a crosswalk in order to attract drivers attention to that and have them just be a bit more attentive uh, to what was going on. And they didn't just ask the city to do it. You know, hey, get public works out there and paint it and let's employ the city engineer and uh, to design it. But instead, they did it themselves. And it was so much fun to do. And then at the end, and this is something I've learned about placemaking, they had to have a party. They had to celebrate what they had done. And they had this, a block party is a very traditional block party, but it was to break in the crosswalk. And so this crosswalk of these variable blue colors, you know, great pictures of kids running on them, playing on them. They had a fire pit in the middle of the street. And then really to add to it. And this is where a lot of the motivation for my research comes from. They decided to have what actually at first, what they were calling a candidates petting zoo. So it was a meet the candidates event, but they kind of put them all in a yard. Like (laughs) you'd put a petting zoo in a yard and they said, come meet the candidates. So it was people running for state rep. I think people running for state Senate, but then of course, a lot of city council members as well. And so this really simple desire to improve the built environment to help uh, these kids ended up becoming this big social capital opportunity. And on top of that, a traditional political experience as well, a meet the candidates, but a meet the candidates with a beer in your hand and kids running around your feet. And so in that way, it was quite unique. And what's really cool, of course, is that even after it was gone, the crosswalk's still there and the crossing guard again, just today I asked her, I said, Hey, I'm going to be going on a podcast to talk about the crosswalk You tell them it works. You tell them that people do drive slower Mm -hmm. because of that crosswalk. And so that was, that was one of the stories. That's the story that led the book. And uh, it still is something that uh, really gives me the warm fuzzies.
2: What do you mean when you say placemaking?
0: Placemaking is working in what we kind of call the built environment. So infrastructure areas, these could be parks, these could be streets. Uh, it could you know, even be, this is going to sound kind of weird, but like things in the air that you are taking a space and you're making a place out of it. So you're activating it in some way. And placemaking does not have to be for political purposes, but it certainly captures a lot of the things that we see now as being popular trends. Things like pop-up markets are a good mm. example of placemaking. You have a vacant parking lot. They throw a pop-up Christmas fair in it. And uh, that's making places, taking a space and making a place. Little free libraries are an example of placemaking. Uh, the crosswalk example is a good one. Murals, any kind of public art uh, would be a good example of placemaking. And placemaking is something that we've done ever since we've had civilization. Ever since you, know, you had plazas and any kind of outdoor area parks that people would come together. That is essentially placemaking, but placemaking the way I use it now is more deliberate and it tends to be more strategic set of actions and associational behaviors.
1: How critical to the placemaking that you're talking about and the placemaking that your book argues is really an important expression of democracy, especially in the current moment. How much of that depends on the piece that you mentioned that neighbors work together to do this themselves, not they lobbied the city and had city employees paint the crosswalk blue.
0: The social capital or associational behavior side of placemaking is essential to it being nested in democracy. If it's just the city doing it, then you lose that connection with your neighbor. And what we've learned over the last 30, 40 years is that those connections seem to be fraying and even disappearing. And so if we don't find a way to reestablish those connections, then future action will be less what's a good way to put it the future action will be less impactful because there's it's going to be harder to overcome disagreements with one another and then there will be it'll be harder to sustain those efforts as well some of these things with placemaking they, they take a lot of energy they take a lot of time many are just pop up they're here and then they're gone but some of them take days weeks months even years to execute and maintain. And so the way that those relationships are able to be fostered and developed makes the whole system stronger. And that is what is so important for democracy right now. It's particularly American democracy.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of an interview I heard with um, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. And he said, just telling people it's the right thing to do to embrace your neighbors, no matter how diverse they are, just like sort of leaning on that moral or ethical motivation it just doesn't work like it just doesn't work but saying here's a problem I'd like you to work on together here's a thing I'd like you to do together giving them a shared purpose and a mission does work it connects people it gives something for people to to latch on to and to see that they are connected to the other person to their fellow citizens so that makes perfect sense to me how do we find more opportunities to do that
0: yeah, well, and you know, that's kind of tricky. They're, these events, placemaking events, as I refer to them, they tend to happen through existing organizations and existing associations. So one of the best things that you can do to try to identify placemaking opportunities or things like that, that build this associational behavior that are, that are fun, that you want to do, is to find an, a, a group that you would like to to associate with neighborhood associations, church groups, I think are excellent, you know, very strong networks that even have a little bit of budget behind them. These things are rarely Mm. free. They don't have to be expensive, but they're rarely free. So finding an existing organization, preferably one that you're even already involved with, and then trying to build, it's a very, placemaking is a very yes and kind Mm. of scenario. Yes, we can be a book club and we can build a little library. You know, this mm. is not doesn't have to be difficult. Um, and in fact, building the library is another opportunity to get together and drink a beer, drink some wine or whatever it is you do with your book club, talk about things, let the kids run around. It's just another opportunity to be together. That's then going to make the book club more enjoyable. That's going to make your fellowship At church, more enjoyable. You're, um, you know, the before and after time at church before uh, the service begins, that you're seeking out people to work on these projects. So that's really the best way, if I were to suggest to somebody that they wanted to engage in placemaking, that the second best way is to just do it yourself. There's actually a uh, quite a bit of placemaking that's done that's called tactical urbanism. And the mm-hmm. whole point is to be very uh, covert about it, actually, in part because it may be illegal what you're doing. Now, it's one, <laughs> it's one of those illegalities like jaywalking. Like, chances are, you know, nobody's, nobody's going to ticket you. And at worst, it would be a ticket. Uh, I've often thought, you know, speaking of crosswalks, I'd love to just paint little ducks like mama ducks with ducklings walking behind them and paint that in the crosswalk just to send the image you know to let the drivers know yeah families are here families are cl- if i did that i would do it without telling anybody yeah that i was going to do well it's it.
2: like the person who actually knits the little hats for the ducks in boston like they're the actual ducks in the park and they have like costumes
0: yeah. Or or what do they call it? Like um there's a lot of knitting that goes on. Oh, that's yeah. kind of weird to say, yeah. but that's a perfect example of placement. Have you ever stood around a bike rack like you will stand around a bike rack that's been knitted all over? You know, I mean that's it's really a testament. And then you talk to the person standing next to you uh, about that. So those kinds of things they don't they just take somebody who's interested in, it. and you do have to have. I hesitate to use the word skill, because definitely when I started building little libraries, I would not use the word skill. But whether you're making hats for ducks, or painting on the road, or building little li- people don't live in little libraries. This isn't, yeah. you're, you're not trying to keep a homeless person warm. There's, it right. really kind of lowers that expectation, which is also makes it a lot of fun.
1: Something that Sarah and I talk about a lot is that our existing answers for how do I get involved in politics or how do I get involved in democracy are really disempowering. It's all very mm. passive. Well, you can make calls for a candidate, which is, you know, not a fun experience for me. I'm I'm a real introvert and I do not enjoy calling people and clearly bothering them. Um or you can donate, right? Like but our answers are you can write a letter to your representative. Placemaking I love as an answer to how do I get involved in democracy because it is really empowering. And I think that element of risk associated with some of it is maybe part of the empowerment. I love that you started your book with the crosswalk example because here here is a group of people that just said, fine, there's some risk. We're going to take it. It's worth it to us in this situation.
0: Absolutely. And you find that the policies, you know, again, you say, well, I want to get involved in politics. Well, how is painting a crosswalk getting involved in politics? Well, I'll tell anybody who's listening right now, go try to paint a crosswalk near your house mm-hmm. and you will learn very, very quickly to what extent this in, this is involved. When I tried to build little libraries for the first time in my community of Bellevue, Kentucky, I got a letter from the city saying that if we built these, we would be cited for building little free libraries. I mean, it doesn't take long before you're sitting in a in a room with council people flanking you and um, and bureaucrats kind of everywhere to realize that it, it does touch these things. And so, it really is an excellent way. And it's not only that, but it's it's an excellent way to get involved, whether you realize you're getting involved or not. But also getting involved with people who share a common interest to you, and placemaking has this intersectionality to it. Um, we just up the alley that's uh, behind my house, we painted with polka dots a number of years ago, and so we were updating those polka dots this season. And uh, yeah, so we had people that just wanted to come out and do it because they love the alley. We have others that love painting and so they wanted to come out and be a part of that and so it was really interesting to me the number of different reasons that people came and almost none of those reasons had to do with the public policy of pedestrian safety it had to do with all of these other myriad things and yet you only had to talk for about a minute before they all the second thing they jumped to was public policy. And you learn so much in that process. And this is all so empowering. And it's also a great way to make a name for yourself. So when you're asking, Mm -hmm. how do you get involved? Well, one of the best ways to get involved is to have somebody ask you to get involved. And one of the best ways to have somebody ask you is by doing something cool and effective that attracts attention. And so that's what these things can be as well. And then a final takeaway when we think about that is the beautiful thing is, you know, or, or maybe the terrible thing about getting involved in traditional politics is that when it's over, if your side loses, you lost, and you're done, you know, at least for that election cycle. If you build a little library Even if your side loses, whatever that means, there's still a little library there. I've been trying to convince political candidates to put up little libraries and do things like that for years now. And I said, you know, you're running in northern Kentucky as a Democrat, for example. You're going to lose. I hate to be the bearer of bad news to you. You should run. This is important. You're driving the policy conversation. You're activating people. But if you built 10 little libraries, even after your election loss, you can still drive by these little libraries and you watch kids get books out of them and you will derive a sense of satisfaction and purpose from that long after the election is gone. So it really, I've always been impressed by the durability of the influence, positive influence of uh, on people of placemaking.
2: Well, and I think placemaking for me speaks to something I have a lot of concern with when we talk about politics and how it plays out in our lives, which is, you know, the phone calls and the you know, social media engagement and a lot of the ways we traditionally think about politics, especially national politics, speaks to a sort of political hobbyism. And listen, I'm not trying to bust on political hobbyism. I'm a political podcaster. You know, I think that there's (laughs) that we forget that politics is about power. And even at a very small level, like a crosswalk, there are stakes and stakes speak to power. And I think that getting our feet wet with that and like putting a little skin in the game beyond just electoral skin in the game, not to, you know, downplay the stakes of that. The stakes of that are extraordinarily high, but to remind ourselves that like there are stakes also at the governmental level, not just at the electoral level and and sort of seeing that play out, be it a crosswalk, be it a, um, you know, I read a book where they were talking about some of the political parties who were hosting like car clinics so that people could come in and get small car things fixed or daycare on electoral on election days so that people who had to work. And the schools were off. Had an option, like really providing impact in people's lives. That's what the like old party bosses used to do, right? Is like show up in people's lives. I'm reading Susan Page's new biography of Nancy Pelosi, and she talks about Nancy Pelosi's mother. Um, Nancy Pelosi came from a political family in Baltimore. Her her father was the mayor of Baltimore. Had a favor file, and people would come in and ask for something, and she'd say, "Okay, we're going to help you." get this job or do this, that like this real impact in your life, your name goes in the file and the next person that needs something, I'm going to call you, you know, like at this, this very, cause that's what helps too. As you do this stuff, you build connections and you say, okay, you help me out. I'm going to help you out this time, or I'm going to show up at your event because you showed up at my event. And it just, it forms those connections. It raises the stakes. It shows you that sort of flow of power and connection inside a community. And that that's really what government and politics can be about more than just reaching out to strangers and and trying to convince them to vote for your candidate.
0: Yeah, I don't know when it became such a thing that that's all we do in politics. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's been that way my whole life. I remember growing up and, you know, going out when I was seven years old and putting up Dukakis signs with my dad and, uh, you know, as Dukakis and I was from central Texas. So, you know, you can imagine how that one went over, although we should remember that Ann Richards was governor of Texas at the time. So it was a different world that we lived in then, but yeah, that's what it was. And it was, but it was even going to a lot of like barbecue fundraisers and things. And at least those had some social capital intersectionality with it, but you know, they, it, Somehow along the way, we really started to separate politics from, you know, and putting it in like this partisan camp and then there's civics. But the Aristotelian kind of like the ultimate classical ideas that are around politics have nothing to do with elections, but they have instead to do with us as individuals. And how we as individuals, you know, manifest our own powers. Aristotle said, you know, bears have claws and bees have stingers, you know, humans have reason speech. And that is why we are political animals. Uh and yet again, that that term politics and political has been totally co-opted. But I'll tell you, that's become one of, you know, what you touched on there, Sarah, has become one of my, you know kind of biggest battles that I have to wage either with my students or with my neighbors is just trying to help them redefine and reconceptualize politics. Um, and that's, uh, it's usually, uh, fruitful, but, uh, but I'll tell you, it's not easy. It's not easy to try to help people kind of work through it. it's almost PTSD, mm-hmm. uh, not to use that term flippantly, but, People, especially over the last five years, 10 years, 12 years, it's really changed fundamentally how we see the political system. And we're burned. We're burned out by it. Uh, but that's where if they can take something like your book, you know, that I think you're wrong, but I'm still listening, and then marry it to this this doing. And that's one of the things about placemaking is it's about doing things. So, you know, take off your jersey, but put on your paint smock. You know, that, that'd be, mm-hmm. that would be the follow-up I'd write to that chapter. Uh, so, or put on a different jersey, the jersey of your community, the jersey of whatever it is that's most important to you. And you'll find people that want to do that with you. And we saw a lot of that during the Black Lives Matter protests last summer. And those street murals that they painted outside of city halls, there's not a better example of placemaking. You know, they created place within a specific Mm -hmm. message to the policymakers. You will not forget this. I will not let you do that. And then the ownership that we can take, even those of us who didn't wield a paintbrush, the ownership that you saw with the social media dynamic of that versus the discussion around what Black Lives Matter and the policies associated with that mean. Everybody could get behind the mural, the rallying of community support, even if they were skeptical of defunding the police. And I think that's an important, you know, kind of way to discern and those also those problems related to that, the P word, right, to politics.
1: So much of our polarization feels like an absence of creativity to me. And what I really like about placemaking is that it kind of asks us to reignite our civic imaginations. And so giving people some more examples of that, I would love for you to tell the story that you told me the first time that we met about your run for council and the dog park.
0: Uh, my run for council and the dog park. Maybe you'll have to remind me. <laughs> you were telling
1: me that people really wanted a dog park uh-huh, in your community, uh-huh. and that you talked about and, and I think you did a pop-up dog park, did you not?
0: We we did not, but that's what we had suggested is that people do a dog park. So yeah, this is a this is a great you know thing about placemaking and creativity is that there's a side to it. It doesn't have to be this way. And something I should have mentioned already is that placemaking is often co-opted by people in power by bureaucrats. It doesn't mean placemaking is bad, but going back to the beginning of our conversation that it's just not the same if -hmm. you have public works paint on the ground but this idea of temporariness is is really cool and is actually really empowering and so we had we were planning on doing that and i was encouraging them to say you know what before we spend ten thousand dollars on creating this dog park and i'll be honest that is probably a gross underestimation of what it costs to do a dog park so this is another thing we learn in the in the process of doing things like placemaking is how expensive stuff is you think that fencing permanent fencing isn't that expensive. I learned recently, we got a bid on one of those water fountains that has a, a dog water fountain on it too, drinking fountain.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, $2,500. $2, yeah, I believe that. $2,500. $2, $2, yeah. I,
0: yeah, I think more. we found a cheap one. I think that's just the one that we found. So we were suggesting mm-hmm. at the time, Beth, that you and I spoke, well, why don't you do a pop-up dog park? What does it cost to rent a fence for a weekend? And then if you can prove the, uh, the need, the viability of it, you know, cause what do people say? Well, the dogs are going to bark. Nobody's going to have anywhere to park. Well, are people even going to pick up the dog poop? You know, you get these, you can probably rattle through a half dozen kind of naysaying things, even if you love dogs and you love dog parks, the creation of one's very different. So what do you do? You test the idea, you test it and you say, well, why don't we put up the fence? And then at the end of the weekend, what is usually the sentiment? You know, there's plenty of parking, in fact, why don't we make the dog park bigger than we Lord, did More Lord, people
2: are obsessed with parking. Obsessed. Oh,
0: everybody. Everybody. You you served on commission, Sarah. Yes, you, I did. You know, it's <laughs> always about parking. It's always about parking. And uh, and I live in a highly urban area, and it's actually kind of laughable when people complain about parking. But man, it's, it's good. I look forward to being of a certain age that I can complain about parking. <laughs> I assume it'll come. It'll come eventually when I'm off council myself. But yeah, test it out. Let's just test it. Let's try it. There's some really, you know, edgy organizations out there right now. Yard and Company, who provided the pictures for the books and were actually, he was one of the residents that painted the crosswalk. They have an urban uh, kind of design and community development uh, business, and a lot of what they lean on is test. Test, test, test. Don't spend $75,000, $50,000 on something if you don't know it will even work. Now, chances are it's going to work, but will it work exactly within those confines? Um, And a pop up dog park is a great example of that. And it's also a great way to prove to policymakers that it'll work. Almost anybody will approve something temporary. But getting them to commit to it being permanent, that's a whole other level. But the best way to get them to commit to something permanent is to show them. So that's the connection that I make in in my book and in my research. It was a very kind of aha moment. I remember it specific. I was out on a jog and I thought, how does placemaking, how can we understand this in like the political science literature uh, for being, you know, like political participation? Well, it's a demonstration and demonstration is a word that we use in almost, you know, exchangeable with protest. Mm. And that, so you got to demonstrate and you demonstrate it. And so, you know, I'm having a demonstration this weekend and people are probably thinking like, oh, we're going to walk arm in arm and we're going to fist in the air. No, no, we're actually just going to demonstrate what something looks like. Spray chalk is a thing. So you can use spray cans that have chalk in them. And so you can create a parklet You know, using some planters and a parklet would be those things that we've all probably become more familiar with during the during the pandemic, where you take parts of the street and you kind of close it in so people could sit there or whatever it is they want to do. You really need some planters, maybe a few cinder blocks and some spray, spray chalk. And then the reality is once people see it, they enjoy sitting out there, the restaurants enjoy having it. That the next Mm -hmm. step is city officials taking and running with it. So, uh, so yeah, that's, so Beth, we never ended up doing the pop-up dog park and not surprisingly, we don't have a dog park in Bellevue still. So, you know, uh, but there does come a point like, sorry guys, I can't do it myself. I don't have a dog. Not too <laughs>
1: No, but I love that approach. I was thinking about, we got an email from one of our longtime beloved listeners, Bryn, who is really struggling because people are speeding in his neighborhood. And it is all out war on Facebook about the speeding in the neighborhood. We have this in my neighborhood from time to time, too. And I was trying to think, like, what's the creative placemaking approach to getting people together to solve a problem like that? And even having, I don't have an answer yet, but having the question is really helpful.
0: Yeah, uh and there are there would be a couple things that I'm sure that those neighbors would come uh up with what first and foremost what would make them slow down. And this mm-hmm. is where we see not only those signs that say uh kids at play or drive like your kids knee here, uh, live here, but we see some of those signs that are shaped like kids, Yeah. Uh, you know, so things like trying to pinch the roadway, trying to make it smaller um, in a weird way, I'd almost suggest, you know, putting I, cars
2: on the street. So people slow down. That's actually a good cars, idea.
0: Putting cars on the street. Uh, you have yeah. little
2: kids. It, it feels, it feels sort of counterintuitive. Like, well, if I put my car on the street, then my kid can dart out from behind it. But I think you're right. I think in a way it sort of like pinches it down and makes people pay closer attention.
0: I've started using cones. Uh, We This polka dot alley that's actually adjacent to our house. It's at the side of our house. Uh, And uh, yeah, we'll put cones just at the mouth of the alley. We don't close the alley, but we put it at the mouth of the alley and we'll bump them out into the street. So as cars approach, they see the cones. So I'd suggest that. I'd say put a cone out next to your car. And Chances are somebody driving down the street is going to think that there's somebody working around Mm -hmm. there and they should be careful. They're looking for like the tree trimmers or the utility. People think about who uses cones. You don't want to get hit by that utility, but you don't want to hit a utility person, somebody who's working on that. Set it out right next to your car so nobody can claim that you're blocking the street, but there's something about that visual and then take it in because if you leave it out then people get what, used to it they get used to it exactly it's like crosswalk flight I have in Bellevue they're like we need flashing crosswalk signs we have one <laughs> nobody yields at it it's not like the ones you see today that are that are ringed but it's an old one with a flashing yellow light on it and i always say well we have one and they go where and i said exactly yeah. you know you can put it in so there are ways to do it but yeah pinching the street bump outs trying to put stuff in the street so this could be your spray spray chalk or just take chalk and just write real big in the middle of the street. Slow, Slow down. down. <laughs> it's, and then if it well, works, and I just think
2: you too, as you, as we try to tackle these problems, I was thinking it's really important to remember, like, it's not all going to be fun. There's going to be a person in your neighborhood or in your community or in your organization that doesn't want to do anything. And there's another person who's going to think that person's the worst because they don't want to do anything. And they're going to want to complain to you. And there's going to, like, it's not, I think it's important just to set expectations. Make no mistake, I still think it's a worthwhile endeavor and it's positive. But I think that, you know, we want to consume community relations, right? Like, come in, have the consumer experience and leave. It doesn't work like that. Like, you have to kind of be invested. You have to get used to the 20% who are loud and complain the whole time and not let them get to you. You have to take two steps forward and three steps back sometimes and still count it a win. Like, I just think that we've sort of lost our, our bearings on what it's like to do this kind of stuff. And it sounds, it sounds like, I mean, when you use words like chalk and polka dot, it sounds very fun. And it is, and also it still involves human beings who can be a real pain in the butt sometimes. So just like, remember that it's okay. okay.
0: I'm shocked that you would say that people (laughs) can be difficult. (laughs) I just can't believe that. Well, you know, here's the deal. Haters going to (laughs) hate, you know, Uh that's just all there is to it. And honestly, you need some haters. If, if nobody's hating on what you're doing, I'd argue you're not. You're not doing enough.
2: Listen, my friend Uh, in eighth grade told me a queen with no enemy is no queen.
0: A- Amen. Amen to that. And um, now that's not to say you should invite, you know, uh, hate by any means, but you should assume it's coming. And, and again, Sarah, you know, as well as anybody that once you, when you serve in a elected capacity, the wins, it's not three steps forward and two steps back. You're lucky if it's one step forward and 10 steps back yeah. and you're, you know, you're celebrating all through the night for that one win. Um. And yet we have this, we, we sometimes glam summarize this idea or romanticize this idea of being an elected official. But if you have something, whether it's people driving too fast on your street or something, you know, that we would say is like a higher level issue than that, although I I think there's probably nothing more. I have a four year old. Nothing scares me more than people driving too fast uh, mm-hmm. on the street. But uh, but if you just say a higher level issue, I'll tell you this right now, you can run on that issue. You can focus on that issue when you are elected you will focus on everybody else's issue.
2: Yep. That is so true.
0: Yep. And that's not bad. But, no, and fine. I know people who want to run because they want to help other people get their issues. That's the perfect reason to run. Mm-hmm. But if you truly have a pet issue or an issue area that you want to pursue, honestly, you're better off being on the outside, painting polka dots and pressuring city leaders. And you will get more allocations and you won't feel like you need to be deferent to anybody because that's your thing. And placemaking, you know, that's not perfect. That's for what that said, I did but it's get. A good way.
2: That said, I did get the crosswalk I wanted while a commissioner.
0: Nice, nice. I got I ran uh, for Bellevue City Council because I wanted drinking pout- fountains in our parks. It took nine months to get one and it took another 18 months to get another one. So I'm patting myself. You're on, on your the way.
2: <laughs> and then we had to shut them all down because of COVID. Nobody can uh, use shared yeah,
0: water run. That's Right. Just, we well, go. you got to bring that up. <laughs> Perfect example. Perfect example. <laughs>
1: But I like, Sarah, that you're focusing on how uh, there's going to be some friction in the process, which is why I think we have outsourced so much exercise of political power to professionals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we complain that the professionals only do what they do because they need our votes. And so if you want to kind of reclaim that balance, then we take some of that responsibility for the friction onto ourselves. Like maybe I go at the speeding issue really hard because I don't need anybody to vote for me later. I just need the speeding to stop. Right. And if people get mad at me in the process, I'm an adult who can handle that. It's a very different situation than if I have an election coming up in a few months.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. to be an ideologue when you're an elected official is a bad thing. I would argue being an ideologue when you have something like that and you're on the outside is a good thing. I mean, that actually helps you get it done. And then policymakers, I think, have more respect. Nobody wants an advocate who's wishy washy. That mm-hmm. that makes no sense at all, or who's spread too thin. We all have those people who show up to, you know, city councils and even go down to, you know, the Kentucky State Capitol and every other state capital, and they're they're down there daily. It's like, is this back to the hobbyist? It's like the
2: cones. People stop noticing you.
0: They do. They do. Absolutely. So to focus in on that. And maybe at that point, if that's really, you want to deal with every issue you should run for office, but, uh, but we know how that's likely going to, going to work out for sure.
1: Right. I would love to just give you a chance. As we wrap up to talk a little bit more about how big these concepts can be. I think about the speeding example that Bryn offered up you know, he is concerned about this because he doesn't want more of a police presence in the neighborhood. And whether you are a person who says, well, policing leads to inequitable outcomes Or a person who says we shouldn't bother the police with trivial stuff like speeding in neighborhoods. We should let them be out, you know, doing more high impact things. It seems like that's an objective that people of lots of different politics could get behind. It's hugely impactful if you avoid more police presence in your neighborhood because the neighborhood is working together to solve those problems. So I wonder if there are other contexts where you can kind of help people see, you know, my my cones here or my pop up dog park there really connect to the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I know I keep coming back to the little libraries idea. Uh, I'm hugely passionate about early childhood education. And so little libraries, I feel like not only putting one out in front of my house, but making sure that there are some around town and accessible has proven to be a pretty high level issue kind of surprised me. We have, like I said before, we uh, Bellevue is one square mile. Uh, and so we're, we're in the urban core of greater Cincinnati. And now we have about 22 little libraries in our community. And what's even at a higher level is that we've begun working the public library. And the public library has endorsed maybe too strong a word, but they've created programs to make sure that library or books are getting into those libraries. So I believe in literacy. I believe in early childhood education, that these are essential for our communities and for our nation. And little libraries help me get at that thing and then add to it. Neighbors walk by. They take books. During the pandemic, we uh, we put food in our little library. So you know, people always say, "Well, create a little free pantry." And I said, "Well, why don't you just you know, make a little library and put some canned corn in it?" I mean, you can do that. Not surprisingly, the popcorn went first, then the mac and cheese, and the canned vegetables were dead last. Somehow, the carrots. Aww. My kids love carrots, so that would be another example of one. A lot of people, their big issue is art. And almost all of these things that we're describing are aesthetic. Uh, They enhance the value of art and creativity. Beth, I think you asked about creativity or Sarah, maybe it was you that talked about creativity being kind of missing from policymaking. But some people would say that art in art education, but art more generally is missing from society at large, particularly in small communities. I'm blessed to be living in Cincinnati, which has, you know, a very vibrant arts community, but that's not true everywhere, but this doesn't have to be fine art. So that would be another example of how these seemingly small things, even working with chalk and being temporary. I mean, we've probably all seen those videos of the monks doing the colored sand, you know, for sometimes days at a time to create these beautiful um, artistic creations and it's very meditative practice. And then what's the deal at the end, right? They wipe them away. It's Mm -hmm. gone. Does that make it less because they wipe away? No, absolutely not. In fact, that's what makes it even more amazing that they do it. And so there would be another example, you know, are arts and literacy and speeding, you know, really that important to society? Yes. Actually, I set that up like I was going to say no, but actually, yes, those things are very important. And we could say we want to honor our veterans. There's a placemaking outlet for that. We need to build our economies, pop up markets. There's placemaking outlets for that as well. Uh, so, you know, whatever your issue is and, and your listeners are welcome to send me, reach out to me and I'd be glad to spitball with them about ideas or just talk about this further with them uh, to, to try to help connect the dots of how whatever their issue that they care so much about, how they can use placemaking to help get to those political ends at, at a pretty high level potentially.
2: Love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show and offering your your spitballing
1: consulting up for <laughs> Placemaking with our listeners.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me,
1: Ryan. How can people continue to follow along with your work?
0: Yeah, so they're uh, the best. It's like everybody else, right? The best ways you can find me on Twitter, uh, <laughs> but I, I am on Twitter, RWSalzman, and and otherwise, you know, just send me an email. I don't. I'm more of a researcher than uh than necessarily a a practitioner for hire Uh, but i would certainly love to connect anybody with that they can reach out to me in my email at northern kentucky university it's salzman r1 at nku.edu they can track me down i have a city council facebook page that's honestly probably the best way it's a public page so that's ryan salzman uh, bellevue city council and i uh, all the stuff that we do in bellevue i definitely promote it there because like i said earlier it's a great way to campaign, but don't tell, don't tell my neighbors that. That's not what I'm doing, <laughs> <very much. laughs>
1: Thanks so much, Ryan.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
2: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both.
1: Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? The White Lotus. I've been dying to talk to you about it. You had to finish it first. We're going to try to have this conversation without spoilers Ugh. because I don't want anybody to miss the experience of watching The White Lotus.
2: I just think the spoiler is like the least important part. Whatever. It's
1: fine. But like that part is so
2: unimportant to me. It's like the, the surprise at the end is like the least impactful part of the series. But
1: it's fine. I will follow the no spoiler. I agree. But everyone doesn't feel that way. So Here's what I keep thinking about and why, even though I can't say that I like enjoyed every moment of watching it, that would be a little strong. I keep thinking about it. And I just made a list of questions that I am going to be thinking about for a long time because of the White Lotus. First, let me say, we all know that I don't like prestige television. We all know (laughs) that I would rather be watching Survivor than something like the White Lotus. This hit a good sweet spot for me, though, because It was not violent. It was not like, let's crawl into the absolute depths of human suffering. It presented these questions that are like everyday questions. I will be thinking for a long time about whether I'll ever let Jane and Ellen bring a friend on vacation. (laughs) I will be thinking for a long time about how often I casually make a promise that I probably won't keep, Mm. or how often I get my hopes up when someone else does that. I'll be thinking about just the ways that we all learn things about family members that surprise us. And sometimes we learn them, you know, after we have a chance to react to that surprise and process it with that person. A big one that I'm going to be thinking about is how often I act like a tourist in someone else's sacred space. That's a huge theme. And a lot has been written about the White Lotus and all of these wealthy white people rolling into Hawaii and vacationing while taking in like bits of of really sacred Hawaiian music and ceremony. But I've even been thinking because of this show about how I treat other people's homes. Like I love being invited to someone else's house for dinner. And that's like their sacred space. And I'm kind of a tourist in their sacred space for that moment. And it's just something that I'm going to be considering for a long time. So I I loved all of the things that this show has caused me to reflect on.
2: I mean, I first of all, to zoom all the way back out, I'm worried that your prestige television idea of prestige television is, like, just Breaking Bad. I mean, Mad Men's brave prestige television, nobody gets murdered. Okay, there is, like, a really intense moment with a lawnmower, but,
1: like... Otherwise, it's not super violent. It's the depths of misogyny that I have lived enough in corporate America that I don't need it on my television as well. Uh, Well, but like,
2: even, I mean, well, I was going to say Sopranos. That's not a good example. It's a bad example. Game of 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 Thrones is a bad example. Yes, yes. I'll just wait
1: until you bring me a good example. I don't know, but I don't
2: know Friday Night Lights, which is a good reference because uh, Tammy Taylor shines. What's her... Connie Britton. I was like, wait, what's her real name? (laughs) Connie Britton is so good in this. Uh, I don't know if that's Prestige Television. It's definitely not that violent. Well, there's a weird second season. But there's violence in this show, too. So, uh, at the end, that's the spoiler. It's not really a spoiler that there's violence, though, because they announced that from the end. I mean, that's why I love Prestige Television, because I want to think about all these different things. I want to... That's why I, I want TV to make me think about hard things. I understand that that is not everyone's <laughs> desire <laughs> when they sit down in front of television. Uh, listen, I've always said like I one of my teamstone. She asks hard questions, so I like my entertainment to be the same way. Like I want to think deep. I want to I want to go all the way in immediately. And I thought that show did this really well. I thought that it was immediately apparent that this was not a show to numb out. That this show is like is is taking you on a journey. But like it also not. Like I I didn't feel like even though I knew we were trying to get to the bottom of the the dead body that we see at the first episode, I thought that Mike White did a really great job of just sort of I don't know, I don't think leading is the right word, just like exploring some things with us without answers in mind, without destinations in mind. To me that's what really good television does. It doesn't present a conclusion. It says like, well, what about this though? Well, yeah, but well, what about this? Um, and reading some interviews with him, I really just loved his approach to that and his idea of like, I th- this is what art is supposed to do. It's just supposed to help us ask hard questions. And I don't have the answers. And maybe some of my questions were messed up. And maybe the fact that I, as a white guy, took this TV show to Hawaii is, is, is a critique in and of itself. And that's okay. And I just thought that he held all that really, really beautifully. And it was just a good example. I don't want them to do a second season. I think that that's a bad idea. I think uh, the British are much better at saying we did a thing. It was really good. Let's just leave it there. I'm wondering if Ted Lasso should have been like that, if I'm being really honest, because then it becomes numbing. Then it becomes, well, I just watched The Office because it makes me feel good, as opposed to well, it's good art because it it presented this little this little sliver of life and human interaction said, but like what about this? And then when you stretch it forward, well then you're doing something different, which is fine. It's just not my jam.
1: I have confidence in Mike White though. I loved the show. I loved it more after reading a lot of articles about it and especially after reading Vulture's interview with him. It's the headline was Mike White accepts your criticism. And he did such an amazing job in that interview of saying, yes, yes, I use this music. Yes, I use this space. Yes, I'm a white guy. Yes, I live here. Yes, I personally made the choice to be the rich white guy who moved into Hawaii. And what does all that mean? And yes, we need storytelling from people who aren't like me, who aren't rich white guys who get to live in Hawaii and be on Survivor and live all their dreams. Uh, And I have stories, too, and I don't know how to handle those things. I don't know how to think about all of that. And so I think about some of it through my characters. It just made me, honestly, I would like to be his friend. I would like to sit around and talk about these things with him because I think he has a really interesting, healthy perspective on on a lot of the difficult questions that surround making a show like this. And Are you going to watch Enlightened? I don't know.
2: I watched a little bit of it, and I stopped. Um, I did not finish it, even though I knew it was critically acclaimed, and I, I saw where he. I think I watched it too late. See, that's the thing. It's like that. Sometimes they get stuck in time. There's not a lot of. Um, it's hard to find really good television because they're responding to a cultural moment that holds up really well, and so I think that's what's that's also what's hard to get uh, among other seasons. Like I just think, like let's just let it be the 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 moment it was, and not try to stretch that out because then again, it starts it starts being less about the creativity and the art and it starts to be more about like the consumption and the capitalism of that particular form you know we've talked about this with tv and i think they get one good thing and they're like let's do it a million times Which <laughs> is just, just not a great instinct
1: well i would like for someone to make his his vehicle for jennifer coolidge that he talks about in some of these interviews he had another idea for her and i would watch her read the phone book i think she is so funny and so interesting to look at and think of, like, what's going on behind her eyes. Like, she just is, I don't know, such a rich character to me in so many ways. Well, I never would have um, said that about her before. She's
2: not a rich character in Legally Blonde. She's not a rich character in Best Show. I think that what's so powerful about The White Lotus is we all thought we knew Jennifer Coolidge's shtick, sch- and she was like... Oh, I've got so much more to me than you thought that I did. And I think I always, that's really
1: great. I always felt her more. Best in show in particular, I always felt that. There well, was she had a lot some more warmth.
2: It wasn't like pure dits. I'll give her that for sure.
1: But anyway, I really enjoyed it. I'm going to be thinking about these questions for a long time. I just loved all the articles that I read about it and the choices that were made. And so I'm excited about whatever he does next. I'm I'm gonna take that second season and watch it for sure.
2: Well, thank you for joining us for another wide ranging conversation here at Pantsuit Politics. We thank Dr. Ryan Salzman for sharing his time with us. And as always, to all of you for sharing precious moments of your your time with the two of us. We will see you back here on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.
1: Handsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the
2: composer and performer of our theme music.
1: Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler.
0: Barry Kaufman.
1: Molly Kors. The Creebs! Lori Ladau, Lily McClure.
0: David McWilliams. Jared Minson.
1: Emily Neasley.
0: Danny Osmond.
1: The Peasants! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph.
2: Jeremy Sequoia.
1: Karen True. Amy Whited. Emily Holliday. Katie Steigers. Melinda Johnston. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Paula Bremer. And Tim Miller. To
2: support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics.
1: You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics.
2: Ad break, ad break, ad break. This would be a good time for you to take pictures (laughs) so that clicking is not registering. Okay.